Brothers and sisters, I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the book of Revelation. So we'll be looking at chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, and we will begin at verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter. So Revelation chapter 6 and verses 9 to 17. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me then the reading of God's inspired and inerrant Word. When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us, from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Thus far is the reading of of God's Word. Well, last week, brothers and sisters, we, we read about the fifth and the sixth seal, but we only had time to get through John's vision concerning the fifth seal. And what we saw as the fifth seal was opened was the the souls of those who were slain under the altar who were crying out, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You come and avenge our blood? How long before You come and judge those who dwell upon the earth? This was the cry we said of those who suffered for Christ and for the sake of the Gospel, whose lives, in a sense, were sacrificed as an offering before God. And so it is these who are now in heaven who died under the first four seals who are calling out to the Lord as they wait in eager anticipation for Him to return that He might vindicate His name and that He might vindicate His church. Though, brothers and sisters, we said that this was not a, a, not a self-gratifying cry. These were not self-gratifying requests. They were not saying to the Lord, harm them and destroy them because they did it to us. No, this was a righteous prayer, we said. This was a righteous prayer that had the glory of God as its aim. Right? The, the end goal of this prayer was the glory of God. And we said that this was something that we could identify based on how the supplication itself was offered. 
They did not come seeing red in their eyes and being thirsty for blood, but rather they came crying out that God would show to us His justice for the sake of Christ in His own glory, in order that He might vindicate His name. That is why they came calling upon the One who is holy and true. Right? That is how we see the saints appeal to Him. The One who is holy and true. And so, they called to Him to come and to avenge us. To come and to execute Your justice. Why? Because it's at that time that the holiness of our Lord will be beheld by all of the souls on the earth as they will see Him come and His holiness executed as He punishes the wicked for their sin and He puts an end to sin once and for all. Right? They want Christ to come and to judge all who dwell on the earth because it's at that time that the truthfulness of God's Word will be put on display before all people as we will see the promises answered as we will see that everything that God has said was true and surely has come to pass. But just as the promises must come to pass for the name of God to be vindicated, so too, we said, must the threats. As He threatened the wicked with punishment in their rebellion, He must likewise come and punish and execute His vengeance upon the ungodly, likewise to vindicate the truthfulness of His Word. And so we said, their cry, the cry of the saints in heaven, likewise ought to be our cry as well. Brothers and sisters, there ought to be a holy longing amongst us that Christ likewise return and that He would execute His justice in all the land that He might be vindicated, that His name might be vindicated, that His holiness and His truthfulness might be vindicated as He manifests His glory before all and amongst His church as He comes to relieve us from our suffering. Now, in response to their cry, what is it that we see that Christ does? Last week we said He, he did two things, right? He, he gives to the saints white robes and He tells them to rest a little longer until the complete number of the elect have been saved. What is Christ essentially saying to them here? He's saying God has His own program. And God keeps His own pace. And we don't know when the end of all things will come. But there are two things that we can know from what He told us. One is that the end will certainly come. And that the end, though, will not come until God has saved everyone who He has predestinated unto salvation. Right? Those are things that are certainly true that Christ is conveying to the saints here. And so until that day, they are told what? They are told to, to rest securely in their white robes. Now these white robes themselves were given as an assurance that they might know that everything that Christ said must surely come to pass. These robes and these words are nothing but comfort to the saints as these souls are under the altar in heaven crying out. Because what is it that Christ promised these churches who are being persecuted. What did He say to them? He said to them, if you overcome, if you hold fast to My name until the end, you will receive white robes. 
That is exactly what the saints in heaven have. White robes. And so what are these robes? But evidence of God's Word and His truthfulness to the saints that they might be comforted and encouraged to know that everything He has told them will come to pass as Jesus Christ is in control. As Jesus Christ, we learned, is holding the scroll in heaven in control of all things, unfolding history according to the eternal decree of God. As He has been given all power in heaven and earth as mediator of the new covenant. But what we see today is that not only does He comfort the church by giving them white robes and assuring them with these words of comfort, but what He also does is He removes for them today this sixth seal. And in removing this sixth seal, what He does is He gives to John and He gives to the saints a look into the inauguration of the final judgment. That is what He does here today. Under the sixth seal, we see all of the phenomena that accompanies the return of Christ. We see all that occurs before the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on this sixth seal, says this, that the sixth seal introduces the judgment day. It describes the one great catastrophe at the end of the age. And it's this great catastrophe that John sees in this vision that we are going to now, for the rest of our time this morning, delve into and look at together. Now remember, this is part two of our sermon from last week. Last week we spent all of our time looking at our first point, which was the fifth seal. Today we're going to spend the remainder of our time looking at the second point, which we will call the sixth seal. So our second point, or our first point for today, is the sixth seal. And just as we had three subpoints last week, we will have three subpoints under our main point this week. And so our first subpoint is this: What happens to the world? What happens to the world? And this is uncovered for us in verses 12 to 14. So please look with me there once more. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, the great question that plagues commentators and interpreters alike is this, is what is described for us here to be taken literally, or is it to be taken figuratively? Okay, is it to be taken literally or figuratively? Now, if we only had maybe this section, and we didn't have the rest of the Bible, we might say, hey, this ought to be taken literally. That these things literally are going to come to pass in the exact manner in which it is described here. But, because we do not read the Bible like that, we do not read a text in isolation, but we read it in light of the entirety of Scripture, we must look to the other places in which 
our text today is referencing and ask, how are they using these texts? How did they use them? And what we will find is that they were used figuratively then, which is why I suggest that we interpret this text figuratively now, based upon those Old Testament texts upon which our text rests. But understand this, whether you interpret it literally or figuratively, it does not change the fact that we all believe that what is being described here right, is the ruin and catastrophe that will come upon the world. Right? We all agree with that. So let's look then where else in Scripture we read about these similar events that actually lie in the back of our text this morning because it is there. When we, when we look there, when we go back to the Old Testament text, it's there then that we're going to uncover the theological significance for our text today. And so let's do that. So first, John sees what? He sees a great earthquake. He sees a a great earthquake. Where else do we see great earthquakes in the Bible? We can think of Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Here, God descends, we're told, upon Mount Sinai, where He gives Moses and the Israelites uh, the law. And what are we told there when He descends upon the mountaintop? What, What accompanied our Lord there? An earthquake. We're told the, the whole mountain trembled or, or quaked as he descended upon it. And so what we need to see is that an earthquake is a symbol of divine visitation. An earthquake is a symbol of divine visitation. You'll find often when the Lord comes into your presence, an earthquake ensues. It's a symbol of divine visitation. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19, we're told what's going to happen on this day of the Lord. And we, 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 and we read this. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. But here, brothers and sisters, He is describing the judgment that is going to come upon the Israelites. And yet, when He returned... Right When He judged Israel, it is described as having the earth being shook. Right, An earthquake, in a sense, ensues when He had judged the, the Israelites for their rebellion against Christ and His persecution of the church. But not only do we see an earthquake here than in our text, what accompanies this earthquake? We're told what? The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars fell from the sky as fig trees shed winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain was removed from its place. Now the one text that lies behind this text in Revelation chapter 6 is Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 4. Isaiah 34 verse 4. Hear with me what we read there. We are told this. And listen to how similar it is to our text today. All the host of heaven shall rot away. The skies shall roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. This sounds a lot like what we are reading today in our text, doesn't it? Turn with me likewise to Isaiah chapter 13 then as well. 
Isaiah 13. And we'll look at verses 10 to 13. Isaiah 13, verses 10 to 13. Hear and listen to the words here and how, how close it mirrors what we're reading in Revelation 6. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. It sounds a lot like what we're reading today, doesn't it? Turn with me once more. One other text I have for us. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Starting at verse 28. Joel 2, starting at verse 28. This is what we read. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out My Spirit. And here it is, verse 30 and 31. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, brothers and sisters, it would be very interesting if all of these things, every single time that we read they happened, that these things literally occurred. But this is what we need to, to see. This is where we find then the, the theological significance behind this catastrophic language that is constantly being used. Is that in each of these texts that I've read to you, they all refer to the end of the existence of a sinful nation or people. That they all refer to the end of the existence of a sinful nation or people. Isaiah 13 depicts the defeat of Babylon. Isaiah 34, the defeat of Edom. Joel 2, divine judgment upon Israel itself. Right, do we see this then? This language of, of the you know, moon becoming like blood, of, of these earthquakes, of, of mountains and things falling and crumbling, of the sky rolling up and folding up like a scroll. This language is constantly being used. And the question is, are we to understand that every time God judges a nation, this has occurred literally? No, I suggest we don't. But rather we understand it as it is meant to be understood, which was figuratively, metaphorically describing for us God's judgment upon sinners. That is what this language is used to describe. It is figurative language to describe for us God's judgment that it comes upon sinners. Right? Where in the Old Testament, this language is used or directed towards a particular nation or people, as the sixth seal is opened or, unre- or, or unveiled, revealed to us, 
What we need to see is that divine judgment that was poured out on a nation or people, now God is saying is going to be poured out upon the world. All of those who dwell upon the earth, who have rejected the Son and who have persecuted the church. That is what this language communicates to us. And this is the very same thing Jesus Christ taught us Himself and described for us in the Olivet Discourse. We just finished going through the Gospel of Mark where we looked at Mark 13 and we dealt with the Olivet Discourse. In chapter 13, verse 24 of Mark, Jesus says this, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will not be shaken. What comes immediately after that? Verse 26, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. Do you see that this is the same event that is described for us in our text today? This is Mark 13, 24-26. That is the same thing that John sees in the vision. And we know that he's not talking about a localized judgment. He's not just talking about judgment upon, let's say, Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Because of the language that is used. That's why we know that this is universal judgment. Because what do the saints cry out in verse 10? How long before you judge those who what? Who dwell on the earth. Universal language that John uses throughout the book of Revelation to describe not just one specific group of people, but all the wicked throughout all the earth. That is a a technical term and phrase that John uses throughout this book. These are those, the the same people who will wail in terror when Christ returns that are described for us in chapter 1 and verse 7 of the book of Revelation. Remember this, Behold, John says, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him and Here it is. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. This is the same thing being described again in our text this morning. And brothers and sisters, what we need to understand is that the the church will be here during the tribulation. The church will be here when He returns to judge them. But while the ungodly, while the unbeliever wails in terror, we will rejoice while the unbeliever is overcome by fear, we will be overcome by thankfulness as Christ comes and brings with Him a new age of glory as He establishes the new heavens and the new earth in a renewed cosmos. And so this ought to teach us what, brothers and sisters? Knowing that, that this is the end for the world that we live in today, it ought to teach us That we are to live in light of the age to come. That we are to live with our eyes set upon the new heavens and upon the new earth. We are to live as citizens of our eternal abode here and now. The world is passing. And everything in the world is passing with it. So how foolish is it for any person, but especially someone who calls himself a, a Christian, to live now attached to the world and the things of this world. Yes, we are free to enjoy God's good gifts that He gives to us. 
But we must not live for them. We must not desire them so much that if they are removed from, from us, we become unraveled and unhinged and we become angry with contempt, which is how I think many Christians live. We know that the present world is passing away, but so many live desperately clinging to the world, unwilling to depart with nice clothes, impressive cars, uh, jewelry, vacations, TV, their phone, their favorite foods and drinks if God came calling, demanding that you forsake those things. Right? There are so many who would not willingly depart from them because they have fallen in love with those things. But we need to see, brothers and sisters, all of those things are temporal and all of those things are destined to perish. This is why we must not be covetous for earthly things that will one day fade away. But rather, we are to be covetous after spiritual things that promote our spiritual life in the kingdom of God. Which means what? That we are to be diligently pursuing spiritual knowledge. We are to be those diligently pursuing understanding the attributes of God and who God is and what the will of God is. And what you'll see, what it ought to produce in you if you do that, is a greater desire then for eternal and heavenly fellowship with the Lord. And it will make you less desirable or less desirous, excuse me, of of fellowship here with those on earth. This is the problem though that exists amongst all people and especially those who call themselves Christians. We don't spend enough time dwelling upon the things of God. We don't spend enough time meditating upon the attributes of God which would cause us to want to be in His presence one day. Right? We don't spend our time thinking about those things which is why we are so desperately clinging to the things of the earth. Brothers and sisters, we must be laboring while we are here on earth, not for worldliness, but for holiness. Right? We must not be dwelling upon all that excites our earthly eyes, but rather we are to be dwelling upon that which excites our spiritual eyes. We are to be dwelling upon all things that are commendable before God. And when we buy God's grace and join ourselves to the practice of these things, we can know that the God of peace will be with us. Right? And that He will be helping us. That He will be helping to, to mortify our sinful passions and that He will be giving to us by the aid of the Spirit pure and undefiled passions. When we spend our time in the things of the Lord and with the Lord in communion with Him, we can know that He will be helping us He will be our ever-present aid, strengthening our faith, putting to death any unbelief in us, giving to us greater assurance of our faith. He will be helping us to love heaven more and love earth less. But we must flee to Him, brothers and sisters. We have to stop running from Him and run to Him. Running from Christ and hiding from His presence is not the practice of the saint. It's the practice of the ungodly. They are the ones who run and flee from His presence. Not you and I. This leads us to, then to our second sub-point though, which is how the world responds. How the world responds. Please look with me at verses 15 and 16 of our text then. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free 
hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What we see is this, that when God's judgment comes upon the wicked, that they will do two things, we are told. They will run and hide, and they will cry out right, for the rocks and for the mountains to fall upon them and crush them. And why is it that they run and hide? What are we told in our text? It is to hide themselves from the One who is seated on the throne and to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. We hear echoes of this in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10. We read something very similar. There we are told this, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. Why are they, why are they told to run and hide there? From the splendor of His majesty. Right? They run and hide because they don't want to be in His presence. In Isaiah 34, verse 10, we see another text that lies behind verses 15 and 16. Here we have this list in verse 15. Kings of the earth, great ones, generals, so on and so forth. Well, there's a partial list in Isaiah 34, verse 12 of the same thing. Although this is talking about uh, Edom. And in verse 34, verse 12, this is what we are told. It's nobles. That is in Edom. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. So there will be no, no one there to call it a kingdom. There will be no king there. There will be no princes there. Right? The Edomites will be extinguished. And why does judgment arise? It is because of idolatry. It is because of the persecution of God's people. And on a universal scale, this judgment for idolatry and the persecution of God's people will come in its fullness when Christ returns upon all of the wicked of the earth. And do you know how we know that? We know that through the all-inclusive list that we are given in our text today. right? Which is meant to convey to us that there is nobody who will be missed. He will come to judge those who are esteemed highly and those who are esteemed not at all. He will come to judge kings, and He will come to judge peasants. He will come to judge rulers and slaves. He will come to judge powerful and weak. What this is telling us is that God is no respecter of persons when He comes in glory to judge the world in righteousness. No matter how successful one appears before the world, it will do you no good at the final judgment. At all, and everyone will be held accountable before God for their sin. And so do we see that this is what men fear? They fear standing before the presence of Almighty God. This is why they cry out for the mountains to fall upon them. This text likewise harkens back to Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, where the wicked likewise, we're told, will call out to the mountains saying, cover us and to the hills fall on us. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that for the ungodly on the last day, they would prefer immediate death 
rather than to have to stand before the presence of the Lord. That the ungodly, that the wicked, would rather be crushed under the mountains and rocks than stand before God's presence. Being crushed under the mountains and the rocks would be a mercy for them so great if it would allow them to escape the wrath of the Lamb. And yet, brothers and sisters, there will be nothing to hide them. There will be nowhere to run from the terror of that great day. This is the same terror that Adam and Eve faced when they sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned against the Lord? They ran and they hid from His presence, fearful of His judgment. And yet we see there will be nowhere to run. There will be nowhere to run. There will be nowhere to hide. As one author, though, puts out very keenly, he points this out in comparison of the hiding of Adam and Eve and the hiding that will happen at the last day. He says, God has determined that sinful history must end the same way sinful history began. Sinful history must end the same way that sinful history began. Just as Adam and Eve sinned against God and ran from His presence, so too will those living on the earth when Christ descends once more run and hide from His presence, fearful of the judgment because of their sin. But it is not as if, brothers and sisters, God has not given sufficient warning to the world. Throughout history, He has been judging nations and peoples for their rebellion and rejection of His Son and for their idolatrous ways and for their persecution of the church. He did this to Israel in in 70 A.D. in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He did this later on into the Roman Empire itself, destroying it, coming and judging them. He did this throughout the Old Testament to to the nations that persecuted the nation Israel. And so what we need to see is that Once more, He will return again. And at this time, He will once and for all judge those who rebelled against His Son and who persecuted His church. Right? All of those prior judgments that we read about and hear about were meant to foreshadow the final judgment. That's what they did. They foreshadowed the judgment to come. They were meant to display what will ultimately come upon all of those who do not bow the knee to Christ. But those local judgments, those local judgments that occur, will pale in comparison to the final judgment when Christ returns. And so, brothers and sisters, do we all see how doomed this world is? And why then friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do we see that? There are so many things in this world that tempt us to to take our foot off of the straight and narrow path and to move us to the wide path. But know this, that all that tempts you to move off of the narrow path will one day perish. It will all one day perish. And so, let this be a warning to us all. Before doom comes upon the world, at the glorious appearing of Christ, flee from sin and flee from this world. Because everyone here today must flee from something. 
You will either now flee from your sin and from this world, or you will flee from Christ in terror when He returns. The question is, which will it be for you? Because no one apart from Christ will be able to stand on that last day. And this is the rhetorical question that is asked by those who are running and hiding as this day comes upon them frightfully. And this then takes us to our third and final sub-point, which is who in the world will stand? Who in the world will stand? Please look with me then at verse 17 of our text. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Guess what? This likewise finds its home back in the Old Testament. This comes from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 6, where we read this about the destruction of Nineveh. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. And the question is, or the answer is obvious, isn't it? Who can stand before His indignation? Nobody will stand before it. All will fall. This is exactly the same thing that is described for us in the parallel vision found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Turn with me there. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All those, we're told, whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death. These are those who made the earth their idol and worshipped creature rather than Creator. These are those who refused to kiss the Son lest He be angry. These are those who perhaps outwardly heard the Word proclaimed but did not have the Spirit of the living God living inside of them. These are those who perhaps outwardly appeared religious but inwardly did not have Christ. Who perhaps come to Christ today for wealth for health, for prosperity. Maybe even come to Christ out of wanting to escape the wrath to come. 
But let us see that all of those reasons, or I should say none of those reasons, will enable anyone to escape the wrath to come and be able to stand on the great day of judgment. And nobody, though, can cry out and say, well, why is he so unfair? This is unfair. Because what does Jesus himself say to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39? He said to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and that it bears witness about Me. Yet, you refuse to come to Me so that you may have life. Those who experience the impending wrath of God have no excuse, for they have refused to flee to Christ and in Him find eternal life. And you may say, well, what about those who never hear the Word of God? who had on the ability to search the Scriptures, I say to you, the heavens declare the glory of God. And because of that, all are called to seek out the God whom the heavens declare the glory of. And yet, what do people do? What do men and women and tribes and nations and peoples do all around the world? Instead of searching out the one true God, they fashion and form for themselves a God of their own making and of their own good pleasure. And so none are without excuse. All will be held accountable. Now in the next chapter, we will see though, brothers and sisters, that not every single individual person will experience this judgment. In fact, the answer to the question, who can stand, is answered there. Because although Christ comes in anger and indignation, He does not come in anger and indignation for all people. That is not the only purpose for why Christ returns again. Yes, He will return to execute the eternal decree of God in His justice in punishing the wicked and the idolatrous, but He likewise is coming for His church. He's coming for His bride to deliver her from the wrath to come so that she might enter in to His glorious presence forever. But we have to ask, why us though? Why us though? Why the church though? It is not because of any good that we have inside of us. It is not because of any good done by us, because our greatest works are but filthy rags before the Lord. But rather, brothers and sisters, let us see that it is simply owing to the special love of God for a particular people that He chose before the foundation of the world out of His own free will and good pleasure to save. Right? It is all a work of God's grace. It is not as if, as if you and I are smarter than others and we came to the Word looking for eternal life and we found it. Right? None of us could have done that apart from Christ. Right? We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We all, like the ungodly world today, loved the world and the things in it. We all were attached to our earthly pleasures and possessions. But what changed? What, what changed in us? Well, it is not that we first loved God, but that God first loved us. It is not that we flee to Christ on our own accord, but rather that the Father drew us to faith in His Son. This is what Paul declares in Titus chapter 3, verses 5-7. to Saying this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly 
through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See this. You will be delivered on that great day. You will be made to stand if you are a believer before the throne of grace because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ in sending His Son to die for your sins. That is the only difference between the godly and the ungodly. That God graciously granted to you saving faith. That He lavishly poured out upon you His love. Which is all a work of grace. And so, brothers and sisters, knowing how the end will come as we have read about it today, knowing that it, that it must come, knowing how terrifying that it will be for those to whom it comes, will we not be loving witnesses for Christ here on earth? Because if not the church, then who? If not the church, then who? Right? We were shown the love of God in Christ Jesus. Were, will you, who have been shown the love of God in Christ Jesus, not extend that same love to others? Will you not show the love of God in Christ Jesus to your neighbor? Or what are we called to do? To love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Do you not love your own soul? Then why do you despise your neighbors? Why do you despise your neighbors? So let us be living witnesses for our Savior Jesus Christ on this earth. Also then, knowing that by God's grace, we will be able to stand before the throne on that last day. We should not live in fear. Right? We should not live in fear about the impending judgment. Because we know that we will escape the impending judgment. Well, how do you know that? Well, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the promises of the Gospel? Do you believe... Or is your faith based in the blood and righteousness of Christ? Right? You can know if you now live with Christ in His spiritual kingdom, being consecrated to Him by His Son, having those inward evidences of gospel graces of the Spirit in your heart, manifesting them in your lives. Right? That that blessed hope has been laid up for you one day. And when you have that, that great assurance of that comfort, of that hope, What an encouragement it is to your souls, isn't it? This is that encouragement that Christ will relay to His church next chapter as we read. Where all of Christ's people who are living on earth while judgment comes, we will see, will not be affected by it. As He shows to the saints His plan for the church, that we might rest in Christ alone, trusting in His strength and trusting in His ability and capability to bring us through tribulation to glory. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning I implore you to not love this doomed and cursed world, but rather flee from it like Lot fled from Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Don't turn back to love of the world like his wife did and perished because of it. For terror awaits the unbelievers who dwell on the earth when Christ returns. But goodness and glory await all those who love the Lord. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the encouraging news of Your Word. We thank You, Father, that our standing before the throne 
is not dependent upon ourselves, for we all fall short of the glory of God. We ask, Lord, this day that You would move our hearts, that You would stir our hearts and our minds by what we have been taught by the Holy Spirit this morning. And that it would cause us not only to have concern for our own souls, but also to show concern for the souls of our neighbors, being living witnesses here on earth for Christ and for the Gospel's sake. And so, Father, we come before You asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.